So a friend of mine uh, the other day said something to me that has taken me some time to kind of unpack. He said, um, OJ, you are a man without a brand. I'm like, oh, okay, can you tell me a little more? Are you like, are you cutting me down right now? Are you like, is this like a joke? Like, what is that? And he's like, no, no, like, you know, like you can tell kind of like a lot about people, sort of like what they wear. And he's like, I'm like, well, give me an example. He's like, okay. So you see someone wearing like a Columbia fishing shirt, right? Like you have a general sense that like what they might be into. Now you don't know everything about them, but you get a little better. Maybe, maybe it's vineyard vines, right? You kind of see like whatever they're kind of into at that moment. Maybe they just have kind of a carefully curated online profile. So you kind of get a sense of who the person is. He's like, you don't really do that. I'm like, is that a good thing that you're telling me right now? Is it like, a, like what, where are we going with that? And he's like, no, you're just sort of like neutral with a lot of it. And I, and I realized kind of what he was getting at in the midst of it, because I have always been taught like to be more interested in other people than putting ourselves out there, right? Like, listen, ask questions. And I do, I love learning about people. I love learning about stuff. And so that's kind of my default mode. I was like, if I'm around you, I wanna know more about you. I probably don't put a whole lot out there. And it's not for lack of being into things, but it has been more one of those training kind of things that you're there and just wanting to be interested. So a lot of times that comes off. Also, I wear the same clothes every day. And so that may help, you know, like it's like, I've just, I'm basically like Steve Jobs at this point in my life. Um, I have like one outfit and I just wear jeans and like a pole every day. It just makes life really easy. Until my wife said, is it, how is it any easier because you have three different color shirts, don't you still have to pick? I'm like, let's not break my system. It's working. Um, but that idea is like, yeah, I, I do kind of stay neutral, but also, but also uh, there is something that I'm, I'm pretty into. And I keep it mostly kind of on the low because again, try to make everybody else welcome and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes Sometimes it just rises out of me, right? And this is like a great weekend to think about it because when I, when I get together and, and I see the flag rising or uh, when I sing the anthem together with a bunch of people and, and we're all wearing like the same colors together and there's like the fireworks are going off and the jet fighters are going over and sometimes I can start to weep with a little bit of the pride I have in my nation. And, and if you figured out that I was in Gainesville and I was um, at a football game and that I'm a Gator and that I can be a little condescending sometimes, then you've got me nailed down. Now, I know I've lost out 75% of you just now because either you don't like UF or you don't like football or you could care less about all this. But whatever reason, I bet, I bet there is something that you're kind of into. I bet there is a group that you identify with that you can get a little weepy with pride over, right? There's, there's part of, maybe it's our country, like Memorial Day weekend, right? There's a lot of parties going on, the flag's flying. I saw a huge one on 434 the other day and like uh, down Primera, there's like flags every four feet. I know like this is a time you can swell with pride for our country. A lot of times we set time together on that. And so maybe that's kind of the thing. You get really excited and, pr and proud of our nation. Maybe it's your community. Maybe you love Orlando or Seminole County and you get kind of excited about what's going on there. And when people talk about it, you kind of puff up a little bit with that. Maybe it's our church, right? We have a great church. And so I know sometimes we can get really excited about that and feel very proud of what's going on here. Maybe for you, it's being a mom, right? You're kind of part of mom nation and you kind of identify with that. Or maybe you're part of messy mom nation, right? Like we're just trying to keep it together, right? Yeah, you know, like all your posts are about that and you kind of identify with that. Maybe like for you, it's work. Like you're really good at your job and you're kind of like, that's your life. You're on LinkedIn and you're like work nation. That's kind of where, where you sit. Maybe it's just production. Like you are good at getting these things done. It's just sort of that production nation, right? Or maybe you're all about your kids and you're just in a season where like, I, I'm in kid nation. Everything's about that, all my conversations and that. I would say that most of us probably identify with something. There's some part of us that kind of wires and when it all comes together and you're, you're sitting in and you're with other people, it kind of comes out of you. And today we're gonna to be talking about a great nation in the past. 
Uh, it's a nation called Edom. And the people of Edom had incredible pride in their country. And, and they had it for a lot of good reasons. Because today, uh, we're coming to the book of Obadiah. As I mentioned, we're in this series where we're looking at these minor prophets, which are just prophecies that were written a long time ago. And the reason they're minor is they're a bit shorter than some of the major ones there in the Old Testament. But there are these uh, writings that were so uh, on the nose of things that were going on there that God had revealed that we want to learn from today. And Obadiah is interesting. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's 21 verses. It's like a couple of pages. It's kind of tucked in there. And if you were flipping through, you probably wouldn't even notice it because it just sort of flies by in the midst of the Old Testament. It was also written by someone we don't know a whole lot about. His name is Obadiah, which could be a person or could just be a description of the person. We don't really know. There's a number of Obadiahs that are mentioned throughout the Bible, um, but the name means worshiper of God. It means servant of God. And I kind of love uh, that we don't know more about him. Right, because it doesn't matter who he is. What mattered was the message he was carrying. He was carrying a message from God himself. He was a vessel to deliver a message from God. And that's just who he was. That's how he identified, and, that, and that's what he did. And, and I kind of love that today we're coming to this person who was humble enough to say, I, I, don't, I don't need my name remembered. I need God to be remembered in, in his words. He reminds me a lot of, of probably my favorite uh, person in the Bible. I've always loved John the Baptist, and especially his description in the beginning of John when, when someone asked, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that comes? He said, no, no, no. There's someone who's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And, and, and John the Baptist, just he had a, a great thing going, but he understood that he was not the show. He was not. He was just a person along the way. He was a servant along the way, and that's who Obadiah is. So this took place here in the history. So we had uh, Israel was split, Israel and Judah. A lot of stuff is going on. They were split as a nation. They kind of move away. And Judah becomes the southern kingdom. Israel's in the northern kingdom. We kind of have this timeline of where all these folks are. And today, specifically, we're talking about Edom here in the book of Obadiah. So it happens kind of not in the exact timeline where everything is. We kind of have to guess where it is. But we know it concerns Obadiah and it concerns the nation of Judah. There's conflict between these two. And for us to fully understand the division and why there was so much enmity between these two countries, it goes back to a bowl of soup as most national conflicts do. So let's take a look back, right? Let's take a look back and kind of of history as a history of a family. So it starts with Abraham and Sarah. And to get down the JVD, so we have Abraham and Sarah. Most of you probably recognize Abraham, father of the nations, great biblical figure. He had such faith in God that God trusted him to start everything up. He made a covenant with him. So Abraham, Abraham has his wife, Sarah, and they have kids. They have Isaac. He marries Rebecca. And then they have these two kids. They have Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, and, and to know a little bit more about them, it's helpful to hear about them because it all starts before they're even born. Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 22, it says, the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. So there was conflict from the very beginning. Esau was stronger. He was the hunter. He was the one who kind of went out and provided and did all these things, and Jacob stayed home. He stayed close to his family. 
And so uh, Esau's out hunting one day and he comes home famished. He was hangry. I don't know if you've ever been there. Maybe it's right now, but he was so hungry. He's like, I, I, I am so hungry, I could die. And, and Jacob says, well, I've got, I've got a, a bowl of soup and I will give it to you if you will give me the rights to your inheritance. And Esau goes, well, I'm so hungry. I, I, if, what does it matter about my inheritance? Because if I don't eat this right now, I will die. So he trades the bowl of soup and gives over his birthright. He gives over his inheritance. He gives over all of the stature that being the firstborn son would do, which just seems crazy, right? The thing about a bowl of soup, but I'm guessing some of you have been, I mean, I've used those words more than once in my life. I'm so hungry, I think I'm going to die, right? And so he's there and gets the bowl of soup. And then this starts, this starts this enmity. It begins there. I mean, it began in the womb and continues on. And if you, the best I've been able to kind of figure out of anything that looks like that in our society is like the Hatfield and McCoys, right? Like a generations long feud that started over very little and continues on. And that's what happens. And so Judah comes from Jacob and Edom comes from Esau. In fact, Carol, could you put that slide up just real quick with the family again? So right here, just so you can see it. So Jacob, Judah, so that country there comes from there, and then Esau and Edom. So a lot of times, even in Obadiah, when we read it in a minute, those names will be used interchangeably. So it'll be helpful to remember Jacob, Judah, Esau, and Edom, which is helpful that they have the same first letter. Okay. Um, but these two brothers, even though there was enmity between them, even though things were rough, they were still brothers, and they were still meant to look out for each other. And what has happened as we come to Obadiah is Edom not only doesn't look out for for her brother, not only doesn't look out for Judah, but actually takes uh, advantage of them when things are invaded. When Israel gets invaded by the Babylonians and, and Judah's being ransacked, not only does the country of Edom, like they don't just stand by, they don't just like even just like not show up. They actually are standing there, it says, cheering it on, cheering on some of the most violent, awful things that are happening and looting at the same time. Like they have done their brothers wrong. And now Obadiah comes. And he's a prophet and he comes to bring a message to Edom, to the country that has been wronged. And, and usually these prophecies are delivered to the people of God. And this one is being brought to the one who is wrong. This is brought to Edom with a hopeful message for his people. So we're gonna read Obadiah this morning. It's so short that I thought it'd be a good chance to read through the whole thing uh, together. And if you have your phone Bibles, I would encourage you to pull it up and read through it because some of the countries and words are on there. But this would be a good one um, if you wanna look it up and read alongside of it. Um, but I wanted to read through so you can kind of get a picture of what's going on here because it is short and because we get a chance to hear this whole prophecy. Most of the other ones were kind of having to, to skip through and do pieces of it because they're a bit longer. But today, Obadiah, I'm gonna start in verse one. It says, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? but how Esau will be ransacked, how his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Eden, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors, Taman, will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down into the slaughter. 
because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, you'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Gev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepher will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. And the last verse, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. On first reading, uh, this is not the happiest set of scriptures in the Bible. And to be honest, it doesn't get much better the third or fourth time you go through it. And I remembered uh, when we were kind of playing out this series months ago, they said, hey, do you have a preference on which like, minor prophet you want to do? I was like, no, I'm going to have to learn about all of them, so just give me whatever. And that was the day I realized my friends like to play tricks on me and have a sense of humor. Because normally I like to tell like a funny story, right? You kind of get into it, and then you get serious and do all this. And I pulled this up, and I read it, and I thought, they've just given me death and destruction for 21 of 20 verses or whatever. Like, it's just like, it is the, the worst. What have they done to me? And I realized that I had to keep going through it. There is so much more going on than what is there at first blush. Because at first blush, it just sounds like God's wrath. It just sounds like terrible things will happen. And that is what is there. But there is also hope. There is so much hope. And it's also a very timely message. And, and in fact, as, I, as I've been kind of reading through it for the last couple of months, it's a little bit cringeworthy in its timeliness, the message that's here. Because Edom, Edom, the country that this is being written to, the ones who've done wrong, they had it going on. Uh, they were in an incredible location. They were high up in the mountains. They had a really great position that, for defense, for people not being able to invade. They sat up high. They were able to look down upon everybody. Uh, they had plenty of money. Uh, they were prosperous at this time. They were known for their wisdom. Uh, they were, that was one of the descriptions, the wise men of Edom. So they were known for this. Uh, they were indomitable. They, they ruled with a lack of concern for others. They had a very strong national identity and it was getting stronger by the day. And you can hear it in verses three and four in here. It says, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars. From there, I will bring you down the courage of the Lord. This idea that they were high and lofty, but they had forgotten their neighbors. They had become so much more concerned with themselves. Not only they forgotten, they had taken active measures against their neighbors in this one. And their neighbors were actually distant family. I mean, this all goes back on there. They were related. There's a little bit of that sound familiar to today. 
as I've been reading this and kind of just where we are in history, it's not a one for one for us, but it's not really too far off. I mean, we live in the most prosperous time and the most prosperous nation of all time, right? We are riding a high and things are going pretty great. Uh, we live in, in, just by the fact of us being in this room or being born here, we're in the top 97% of wealth in the world. I mean, we, we are in this position in time and history that's unbelievable. We live in an incredible nation, right? We have freedom, we have wealth, uh, we're known for our wisdom and knowledge. I mean, that is what has made our country so much great wealth because we are known for that and with the ways that we create things. Uh, we have a really strong national identity and it keeps getting stronger. But at the same time, there's also kind of a growing sense of caring more for our own interests than for our neighbors. And, and, and now I'm not saying that it's a one for one that God is about to come and destroy our nation. This is not sermon. Uh, so let's just take a pause there. But I am saying that pride is something that God has always taken very seriously. And he has taken it seriously from the beginning of time until now because Edom, Edom was caught up in pride. Verse three, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart. I mean, at the core of all of this is pride. And you can go put a lot of those other things away and at the core of it is this deep-seated thing. And they had pride in their position Right? They are on the top of the world, literally and figuratively. They're up high in the mountains. They're up high in the social stratosphere. They are up high in the defensibility and all of these things. So they had pride in their position in the world. They had pride in their place. I mean, again, physically, they were in an incredible place. They had it going on. They were in a great spot, and they, had, they were proud to be high among everybody. And they had great pride in their possessions. They possessed the great wealth. They possessed great wisdom. They were proud of these things. And as I read through it, Pride, pride is at the core of all, and oh, how I know pride, right? Pride is that really sneaky one that comes and gets you. Pride is at the core of so many of the things, and though I try to come across as humble and try to listen more than I talk, pride is at the core of who I am. That's the one that gets me over and over again. No matter how long I've been walking with God, pride is the one that sneaks back. I remember when I first uh, moved to Orlando and my first job, a, a buddy of mine was going through counseling school and he said, hey, can I do some free counseling work on you, like career counseling? And this is when I learned that you get what you pay for. Um, and so I did, I did the work with him and it was really interesting, right? We did all this stuff and he's, then he's like, well, tell me a little bit about how you got here and I'm telling my story. And then he looks at me and goes, wow, you are one prideful. And then he inserts an expletive there. I'm like, whoa, is this what counseling is like? I did not know this. Um, but it hit, right? Like he said it in a way that maybe the only way that I was gonna hear it. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, do you hear the way you talk about your story that you did this, that you made that, that you just all came so easy? And I realized in that moment, it, it, it was a very graceful thing that he had pointed out because it was, like it's at the core of so many of the decisions and the way I was thinking. And it was the first time someone was willing to call out something that was so deep-seated that I couldn't even see it, something that I could have spent years never seeing and to be able to weigh it against it. Um, pride is the deadliest of all the sins because it's so insipid, it's so quiet, it's so just sort of sits there and kind of come across and we can have struggle with like, is that confidence? Is that pride? Like, where is the balance in all of it? But pride is the root of all of our problems. When you go back to the beginning, you go back to the story of creation, things were great. I mean, God had made this incredible place. Adam and Eve, they have everything they want. The one thing they can't do, eat from the tree of knowledge, to know more than him, to think that you know better than God. 
and their pride drives them to the tree and sin enters the world and everything has been fouled because of it. And it's a sin we still believe today, right? I know better than God. I have a better idea than you. That is so often the root of our decisions. And it's the same sin that sent Jesus to a cross because pride is what trips us up. And God, God sends them a message. He tells them, pride is at the core of who you are and the way you've treated your neighbors is wrong and judgment is coming. Verses six through 10, he says, but how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Eden, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau. Your warriors will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered in shame. And then the last one, you will be destroyed forever. I mean, it is a harsh judgment coming upon them. Edom had forgotten who they were and whose they were. And this is a very consistent theme throughout the Bible. And it's one of the reasons that we're spending time in these prophecies and also one of the things that we've hoped to do over these last couple of years of teaching to be able to slow down and hear this consistent voice of God that God has been speaking the same things from the beginning until now. He's been calling people to himself from the beginning and trying to gather people to be with him and saying, I have a great plan for you. If you will just follow it, things will work. And over and over, our tendency is to turn inward, to elevate ourselves, to worship the blessing and not the blesser, and to forget those around us on the way because we turn towards ourselves. But God has always called his people to turn attention to him alone and to welcome the stranger and to care for our brothers. So who are we and who was Edom and who was Israel? We're people created by God to care for others. We're created in the very image of God to care for others created in that same image. That's who we've always been. And whose are we? We are God's. And Edom was God's. Whether they acknowledged it or not, God created them and he was their God and they had gone astray because God is ultimately in control. Whether they want to acknowledge that in the moment, this prophecy is reminding them that God is ultimately the one controlling. He's reminding them of that. If you remember the kind of the three Ps from earlier where Edom had their pride, they had a pride in position, they had pride in their place, they had pride in their possessions. But here's the thing, only God sits in the highest position. He says, there are no other gods before me. It is God and God alone. It is I, the I am. Only God sits in the highest place. He has been seated in the heavens from the beginning of time and continues to sit there today and he will continue to be there forever. And he is reminding them, though you might sit high on the mountain, I am the one who sits at the highest place. And everything, everything is God's possession. Everything we have is just on loan to us. It's on loan to us to take care of and to steward well. God is the giver of all things. We get to use them for now. And judgment is coming against Edom. And it's clear. And he tells them, you will be gone. Edom will be gone. And if you need proof of that, think about the last time you went to an Edomite restaurant, right? They are not around anymore. <laughs> but here's the thing. All nations will be gone. And this is why it's a reminder to us, because as I was starting to go through, I'm like, well, let me look up the historical nations, right? The ones we all studied in school. Think about where they are now, the Ottoman Empire. Roman Empire, King Dynasty, Mongol Empire, Babylonian Empire, on and on and on, and where are they now? All nations will end. 
God will continue to be there. And in verse 15, he makes it very clear. He says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. There are natural consequences to behavior and God reminds them this is coming. I am the Lord. The thing is, it's not just nations, right? He speaks directly to Edom, but nations, it's also about you and I because another consistent voice of God throughout time is the seriousness of sin and the consequences of it. I mean, in this, it's a very natural consequence to wrongdoing, right? The way you've treated your neighbors, it will come back upon you. This is a natural consequence of things that happen, but the consequences of sin are so serious and God's consistent voice throughout time is that he knows it, that he loves us so much, but he also knows the ravages of disobedience. He is a good father and good fathers know the ravages of disobedience and pride and sin. And listen, my days at this point and season of my life they are just filled with correction and trying to get my kids to understand that. I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old and they get it pretty well, but I also have a four-year-old boy. Um, and it's not because I need them to obey me. It's not because I need it to be, to be fulfilled. It's because I love them so much and it is hard. But I know if they can learn to obey now, it will make their life work so much better. That if they can learn boundaries, that boundaries are good, boundaries help us. And that ultimately their obeying God will set them on the right path. And for now, it is my job to steward that and to teach them. And it's my responsibility in the midst of that. But obeying will ultimately be for their good. And it is exhausting. And those of you who, who are doing this or have done that, you know it. It is an exhausting job of trying to get that through their head. But I know, I know it's waiting on the other side. I know it's waiting on the other side of disobedience. I know it's waiting on the other side of pride. I know it's waiting on the other side of following God. And I would much rather do that hard work now so they understand that because I've been through that pain and I bet you've been through that pain and God wants me to, and you to avoid as much pain as we can, but he also knows sometimes we need to feel it for it to be real and take those right steps. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. God's desire for us is to do good and to be good for those around us, to follow him well. It's no mistake that Edom, this country, is also the Hebrew word for Adam, Edom, Adam, which is the word for humanity. This country, Edom, is the perfect picture of our natural humanness, our, our base core of who we are as humans, pride, looking inward, taking care of our own needs above others. And he reminds him judgment will come for that part. And though this can seem like harsh news and bad news because we all carry pride and we all go astray, there is deep, deep hope. At the end, in this letter, he reminds Israel that they will be saved. He writes this letter to the people that have been following him. He says, and we'll hear this in Joel, another other prophecy. We'll study this summary. He says, Israel will be saved, that his people will be saved, that they will be taken care of. There is such hope for his people. They're locked in oppression. They're locked as refugees. They've been sent away. He said, no, you will be gathered up. Things will work out. There will be a new citizenship and a new kingdom, and it will be preserved. He says that the nations of this time will go, but a new nation will rise, and God will gather those who followed him and lift them up out of the mess and the muck and the mire. But what about Edom, right? He tells Edom, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be God is gone. Is there any good news for them? In another one of the prophets we'll see this summer in Amos, it says, in that day, 
I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord who do these things. You see, there's hope even for the people of Edom. He didn't just write this letter to tell them all this stuff is happening. He wrote this letter in hopes that they would turn back to him. They were given a warning and saying, this is coming, but you have a choice. You have a chance to turn back and recognize who God is because a nation is just a group of people, right? There are no nations without people. Nations are gatherings of us. And we have a choice on how to respond to God. And the promise is that those who heard the prophecy that turned back to God in humility, that they would be saved and that they would be citizens of a bigger kingdom, a kingdom that will never end. And that's us. That is you and I. Though judgment is coming, God's heart has always been for restoration. It's for invitation to be a citizen in a kingdom that will last forever, his nation, the one that will last forever and ever and ever. It has always been an invitation to him. And this has been the consistent voice of God that sin is serious, that judgment is coming, but there is a way out, that that is not the end of the story. This is a warning along the way. And Paul, who would have had these scriptures to study, says it so well as he talks to the early church about what this looks like. The same consistent voice of God when he says in Romans 3, 23, that all have sinned, that we're all in it, that every single one of us carries pride, that we're all in the midst of it. And that in 6, 23, that the wages of that, the penalty, the natural consequences of that is death, is separation from God himself. But then he continues in, in chapter 10, he says, but whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? The same thing he's telling them these thousands of years earlier. So how do we move through this? So how does this affect us? What do we do? We recognize that we are wired up, that we turn inward so often. What do we do? Three things as we close this. First is to repent, to turn back towards God. This isn't owning up to our pride. It's owning up to our lack of falling him well. It's, it's like an acknowledgement of our own brokenness. It's, and it's looking it straight in the face. It's the day my counselor told me that I was a prideful, again, word, um, but actually seeing it and naming it and knowing it and, and being okay with that and saying, no, that I am a mess, right? Like I am broken and sinful and looking at there and turning back to God and acknowledging it. And whether that's for the first time because you're just now getting to a place or for the millionth time, because the longer I do this, I continue repenting and turning back to him. And then the second is to remember, to remember that God is God, that only God is God. And that requires a posture of humility that requires us not saying I did it on my own, that's recognizing that he is who he says he is, recognizing the gift of life, of breath, the things that we've been given, that it's all from God, that it's not our own work. These are the work of God himself. It's an active humility, and I think this is one of the hardest pieces of it. It's sometimes easy to acknowledge it, but the continuing, the active part of humility of looking for the place that God is moving in our lives, of looking in the midst of our blessings and in the midst of our pain and saying, where are you in the midst of this, of constantly looking and sitting there, of remembering who he is. That is hard work, but work that's worth it. And the last is this, is to remember. It is to draw back together with his people. If part of your pride has been separation from your brothers in need, then we need to draw back in to remember to put back together. And it's something that you and I can do now. This isn't something that will just happen in the end, though it will. It's something that we get to actively take part in now. You see, God actually cares about how we treat those around us. He actually 
not like a theoretical caring of how we take care of one another, but an actual practical concern about how we take care of our family and our neighbors and the people that are around us and the people that are far away, a tangible act of caring for those. You see, Eden was on trial for their lack of care. I mean, one of the, the complaints that is listed against them is that they did not care in their brother's time of need, and God has put them on trial for it. And that starts with just looking. That starts with looking at our neighbors, just actually opening our eyes enough to see because pride is about turning inward, right? It's just seeing what we have and looking at ourselves, but looking and opening our eyes to see those around us, remembering humility. This is about seeing the other. It's about noticing Jesus modeled that so well on his time on earth. He, Jesus is almost uncomfortable in how much he notices other people. If you remember some of the stories about how he finds people that are even trying to hide Zacchaeus hiding up in the tree and Jesus calls him down. The woman who just wants to touch him real quick and just to be healed and he stops and listens to her whole story, sets aside everything because he notices her in the midst of the crowd. Remembering starts with seeing and then it continues on into inviting those who are far away back into relationship with you and to us and to God. Because if you know the good news of who he is, part of what we get to do is invite people back into that. There's a lot of people that don't know how good the good news is and you are in their lives for a purpose. And then we also have a responsibility to care for those whom God has called us to. I love that as a church over these next few years that we're really investing in caring for vulnerable children, that we're pouring into the foster system and caring for those who are taking care of the least uh, but it also involves caring for our neighbors. Like sometimes your actual physical neighbor, the one that lives next door that you've never talked to, like actually seeing and caring for those that are around us. We're gonna be having a pretty high call over these coming years as a church. And one of the best things I think you can do in this process is to be all in as we have challenges to care for those around us, to find ways that God is stirring in you to do that, to see and to care. The last verse of Obadiah says this, the kingdom will be the Lord's. He ends on such a hopeful note. The kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Right now, it's so hard to see it in the mess, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. And this is good news. God will be in control. A new kingdom is coming. And you're invited. And it matters. And you matter. And what you do with your life matters. Now and forever. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, for this prophecy to the people of Edom, that a writing that at first blush looks so bleak and can seem so harsh is a reminder of how much you care for us, that you know as a good father the ravages of sin and the pain of pride and what it can do in our lives, but you also know that we can turn back, that there is hope, that you have provided a way out, that sin is not the end of the story, that pain is not all there is. God, there is hope in you that if we turn and call on your name, we will be saved. And there is joy even in the midst of pain with that. When you sit near to us, when we are invited back into relation with you and take those steps, God, you are with us through each and every moment of our life. And you offer us a continual opportunities to repent and turn to you and to remember who you are. And you show us over and over and over again that you're there and also invitations to remember with those around us. God, part of our old selves, our human nature is to be so isolated and to be so inward looking. But God, you invite us to care for others, to draw back to those around us. It's part of why we do this week after week to get together because being together is so important, drawing near to one another because we are not meant to do this on our own and we're not meant to just care for us. God, be with us as we continue to explore this. Help us 
hear this in our life and to put it in the practices we need to. And we lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.